Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm pumped to have Melissa Dinwiddie on the show today for episode 34. Melissa evangelizes that feeding your creative hungers is one of the fastest routes to happiness. As a happiness catalyst and creativity instigator, Melissa empowers people to find and follow their callings, create their art and share their work, because that's how you will change the world. An artist in multiple forms, Melissa models living a full-color life and shares her writings, artwork, and music on her blog, Living a Creative Life, where you can also find her podcast, Live Creative Now. Melissa, thanks so much for the great work you do and for being on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me, Charlie. It's great to be here. Alrighty. So you mentioned that you used to live your life in shades of gray, denying your creative urgences. Urgences. You like that? Creative urges. I like that. (laughs) We're getting this one started off right, guys. Um, But now you're a vibrant creative giant who shares your music, your artwork, your writing, your musings, and whatever else you're sort of creating on a daily place um, in your business and on your blog. So I'm curious, what was that catalytic moment that took you from gray to full color and you're like, I got to do this publicly? Wow. Well, there's actually a couple different chapters in there. There's the earlier chapter before the internet was even invented when I literally stopped making art at age 13 and decided that other people were the artists and I wasn't and took what I now refer to as my 15 year hiatus from art and came back to it at age 28, I stopped making music in te- after 10th grade because other people were the musicians, therefore I wasn't. Came back to music when I was, God, how old was I? In my early 30s. Uh, stopped writing. At I actually tried to be a writer in 1994. I decided, ah, I know what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to be a writer. But writing was really hard. And it was like pulling teeth. It was excruciating. And I sucked at it. And I spent more time thinking about writing than I did writing. So I thought other people are writers. I'm not a writer. And I quit for about 15 years. So there was that, (laughs) those multiple different periods of not doing the thing, whatever it was that was calling to me, because I really perfectionist paralysis is what it came down to. And then there was the later, more recent chapter. I can get into all the specifics of those earlier chapters if you want, but the later, more recent chapter was 2010. I had built up this business over a period of a, gosh, it was over a decade. I started doing calligraphy and art as a a little hobby career, a little hobby business back in the mid-90s. And... To th- up to 2007, I gradually built up this business, and it was it was a sustainable little business in s- expensive Silicon Valley where I live, and I was on track to hit six figures the next year, but the next year was 2008, and we all know what happened in 2008. The economy tanked, and for the first time ever, my business went down. It had never gone down in a dozen or so years that I'd been in business. And not only did it go down, but it really (laughs) went down a lot. And I spent two years in a mad panic, throwing money at the problem, as they say, 
succeeding only in getting myself into debt. So now cut to 2010. I'm now in debt. Those 0% interest credit cards have now converted to actual interest credit cards. The boyfriend who's living with me uh, has decided that he wants to change our relationship such that he wants to move out. And he's already signed, in a, signed in a lease on an apartment, but he hasn't told me about it. So all of this news sort of lands on me at once. I have a, a client who is going to buy enough, commission me to do enough stuff to pay my mortgage. And I am in, a, in such a panic that I try to get them, you know, create a sense of urgency to get them to give me their credit card now because my mortgage payment is coming. And I scared them away. So bim, bam, boom, I had like this series of personal crises that sent me basically into the gutter, like hit bottom moment. And I remember this sort of metaphorical sense of looking up at the sky, you know, from this gutter place and thinking, oh, I don't have to keep doing what I've been doing. I can do something different. I can, instead of settling for the life that is not really what I want, but is what I thought the only thing that I thought I could create, wanting to be an artist and all of that, I can do something different. I can create the life I really, really want. I didn't have the terminology back then, uh, a full color life, but that's, that's what I was looking for. And so I made the decision in that moment, that was February of 2010, I'm going to create the life I really, really want. I have no idea yet what that's going to look like, but that's what I'm going to do. And within, I think, a month, I had started my blog living a creative life with the express intention of charting my journey in the hopes that that would also, you know, my naive little ego hoping that that would also help other people. And so over the past five years, that's, that's the journey that I've been on. And the thing that's really fascinating, Charlie, is that within, I don't know, like three or four months or something of starting my blog, there's a blog post in there somewhere that when I where I talk about, wow, I am already living the life I really want. Am I making the money I want? No. Am I doing, you know, have I achieved every goal that I have for myself? No, but I'm on this path. I am, I am carving the path with my little virtual machete or whatever. And and that is living a full color life, is is, you know, with every step you take you are defining your path. And when you're doing that, that's the definition of living a full color life. That's fantastic. Quite a few things to sort of talk about in that, in that journey. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is, is when you look at the trajectory or you look at the journey that creative giants go on, there, there often are those gutter moments, right? It's like, crap. And sometimes it's, I can do, I can do something different. But I think the, the beauty, we hate those gutter moments, but I think the beauty of those gutter moments is we have to do something different. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, isn't it? That so often the only thing that gets us to do something different is that feeling that we have to. Because if it's too comfortable, then we're never going to bust out, right? I would have just kept going as a not very happy Ketuba artist and jazz singer on the side, which was kind of my identity at the time of the ma major life crisis. A Ketuba, by the way, is a Jewish marriage contract. And the, the business that I had built up was around designing uh, on commission and also designing prints that people would buy from my shop, these documents that are a traditional part of every Jewish wedding ceremony. So 
Yeah. If I, if I hadn't, I, th I think of it in terms of like the universe tells you when it's time. And first it tells you in whispers and tiny little taps, right? Mm -hmm. But we so, so rarely actually pay attention to that. So the universe starts to get a little more louder and a little more insistent. And it starts to talk a little bit louder and it starts to poke you a little bit more. And if you still don't listen, it starts to push you a little harder. And eventually, if you still haven't listened, it whips out a two by four and it wallops you upside the head. And that's what happened to me. And unfortunately, it's so often the, the only the two by four that gets us to make a change. If I were a cartoonist, I would draw like, you know, several agents or divine beings to, to just mention like, I don't know about the design of these humans. They only listen when they're in pain. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> that's how it is. It's like, we, you got to get us in pain before it's like. Oh, now they listen like all these other intuitive and great sort of gifts that they have like, oh, no, those don't count. But let's throw them out on the street and then they'll start living life full color, start <laughs> right. thriving. What's that about? I know I keep hoping that I'll be able to avoid that two by four. And that's, you know, I, I, I live my life. I endeavor to live my life mindfully and to, in you know, increase how mindful I am all the time. But the reality is. I still think periodically the two by four has to come out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think especially when you're living a creative life and you're out there sort of full tilt, what, what happens is you spend so much of your emotional, spiritual and psychic energy creating this stuff. And so much of your energy goes in there. And at a certain point you get stasis going on because all of your energy is going to make this stuff and you don't, you no longer have that flexibility, that, that flexibility and, and sort of sense of wonder to create all this new stuff. Cause you're like, I'm done. Like I did my thing over here, right? I just want to do my thing. And so you'll go through an extreme amount of time, like doing that thing that's comfortable as an artist, right? Comfortable, right? Right. But you know, it's not really pushing you on your creative edge for a lot of different reasons. And then that's where the two by four has to come out because the pain of the situation you're in has to be, you know, worse than the discomfort you're currently in or we don't change. And that's just one of the faulty things about our wiring, you know? Yeah. And th that's something, like you said, that happens to creators. Like I, th I think of it in terms of, you know, you always start off in this place of chaos. I, I liken it to reaching my hand into a black hole. I have no idea what I'm going to pull out. I don't even know if I'm going to get sucked into that black hole, right? That's what it feels like at the beginning of any creative project. It's just like massive uncertainty and massive terror that I'm not going to be able to pull off whatever it is I'm hoping I'll pull off. And then eventually things start to sort of congeal and coalesce and and then, then you start to get into this nice groove and it's exciting. You're, you're discovering things and you're going along and, and it gets really sort of cozy. And then the groove starts to get deeper and pretty soon you're in a rut. That's what happens when a groove gets too deep. And you can feel that. But the, one of the real challenges for creators who share our work, who, bring in income from our work, you know, who have an audience who's paying attention to our work and, you know, giving us feedback on it. We start to get tired of something like that groove has become a rut. The audience wants more. And then what do you do? So then the, you know, the creator's big challenge is to, you know, 
take that detour outside out of that groove, jump out of uh, out of that rut and go back to the space that I I think of as a creative sandbox and get back to that place of exploring and making messes and letting things be totally wild and crazy and messy. And the process starts all over again. Yeah. It's it's fascinating. I love talking to people about their journeys because, you know, oftentimes my when I start a creative process or create a project, it's not it's kind of like there's this obvious string that you need to pull. Like it's like, oh, I could totally do that. And then I'll pull the string and then it unravels an entire tapestry that I've then got to put back together. <laughs> right. And so it's like my pit is like when I pull the string a little bit and the tapestry falls on the floor and then it's like that. Oh, crap. Really? Because now I'm committed. Now I've got this string in my hand and I can't let it go. And so then I'm, I'm putting it back together. And it's like every time, every time it happens that way. Um yeah. And so now anymore, I'm like, okay, for any creative project, I know there's going to be something I don't see. So what are all the things I know I can see? <laughs> and let's get those ready and let's get those figured out. And then you kind of creep up and pull it and you're like, oh, it didn't all fall apart that time. Well, that isn't that the key. It's understanding your process. Like for me, I know every single time I start a new creative project, whether it's a painting or an online course that I'm creating or a new song, whatever it is, it always starts with that reaching into a black hole, total, utter chaos. Ah, I can't do this feeling. It always starts like that. So I know, I know that. So I can just sort of say hello to that feeling. Oh yeah, there it is. There's that, that horrible, awful feeling that I really hate. And I know I'll get past it because I've always gotten past it before. I've been doing this for many years now. So understanding that process is key because if I didn't know that, then I would think, ah, this is horrible and painful and I would just stop. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So let's talk about version, what was it, five of Melissa, 2010, (laughs) whenever that, whenever that got going. Right. Um, And I say that lovingly because I totally get it. Right. you know, what were some of the challenges that you faced in that in those first, let's say, couple of years of being full color public, aka being in business? Well, the first big challenge was this horrible feeling of just being lost and wanting so badly to kn- to have a direction, to know, to have a really clear picture, to know what my path, to have a path to follow, really. And who was it? Uh, Maslow or, or um, Joseph Campbell or somebody said that if, if, you're fo- if, you, if you see the path in front of you, it's somebody else's path. It's not your path. You, Joseph Campbell, you form the path one step at a time, right? So that, that was just excruciating. And that was, I don't know how many months that was, but it was so awful and painful. And, and you know, the path un- unravels itself. It's like you're walking into fog and the fog like reveals the next step just barely in front of you. And eventually it starts to clear. So let's see, that was the first, the first challenge. And, you know, also for me, I was coming from this place of never, never really thinking of myself as, I really felt like I hadn't been given the business gene. Like I was standing in the wrong line when everybody else was getting the, here's how you make, you know, the money, the gene that's going to make you know how to make money and run a business and all that. I was in some other line. That's how I always felt. And so when I came to this 
knew, you know, I was gonna, I knew I wanted to start a new business and not be tied to my old business, which I still have, but it's, you know, it's like a side business for me now. I determined that, first of all, there is no gene. This is something that's learnable. I can learn how to run a business effectively and how to make money. And I can learn how to, you know, operate an online business and all the things that 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 entails. So the next big challenge for me was figuring out kind of who I was going to learn that from. Because (laughs) as you know, there are so many people out there hawking their wares. And it's when you're starting out, you have no idea how to assess them and how to figure out which, which is going to be the right person or the right people for you. So that was a big challenge was just this like overabundant, there were so many things out there and how do I pick and, you know, starting to learn how to assess. I'm a big believer in education. Like that's something that I will always invest money in, you know, or won't throw money at marketing if I don't have it, but, but I will throw money at education because that's something that is a true investment. Marketing's a gamble, you know, like, or, you know, the kind of marketing that I was throwing money at when I was trying to save my, <laughs> my flagging business back in, <laughs> back in 2008, 2009. So yeah, kind of um, getting to know the territory was a big challenge. I noticed a pattern where like you mentioned when you were living before that it seemed like, oh, there are artists and you were in the wrong line for that. And then there are writers and you were in the wrong line for that. And then there's like this business gene thing where you were in the wrong line. And so um, I'm curious, that seems to be a general pattern that you might have. Like, is it just that I think part of what it is, is it's sometimes we get shut down earlier on in any new process because we somehow think we're supposed to be natively good at it. And when we don't start off good, we automatically assume that it's not for us, right? Yeah, absolutely. So this is where the work of Carol Dweck has been hugely important for me. Her book, Mindset, was transformative. I grew up in a family that was really liberal, really loving and really liberal with praise. But the kind of praise I got a lot of was, you're so smart. You're so talented. When people get that kind of praise, it sends us right into this fixed mindset, totally unconsciously. But but then we start to feel that, oh, I better not try anything risky that might show that the assessments that people have been telling me that I'm smart, I'm talented, whatever, are actually false. I'm going to prove them wrong. And boy, did that happen to me. So that that's a huge thing that I've dealt with in many parts of my life. I remember when I started doing, when I started doing calligraphy and art, that was actually the year that I quit writing. And I started doing calligraphy, art and calligraphy as a way to procrastinate because writing where there was so much pressure around it. I, I wanted that to be my career. I thought I needed, I thought, you know, people were born as to be brilliant writers or they weren't very fixed mindset. Right. It didn't occur to me that, Oh, if I want to get better at writing, I need to write a lot. You know, one of the things, one of my sayings is, we need crap to fertilize the good stuff. But I didn't know that at the time. So I thought, well, this is crap. So I suck. So therefore, I need to stop. And um, now I've completely lost my train of thought. But <laughs> 
Well, just uh, the, the, the fixed mindset and the growth mindset and it has been a huge, huge thing for me to understand so that when I notice myself going to that place of, oh, I don't have the blah gene, then I can, you know, sort of intercede and say, oh, wait a minute, there is no blah gene. This is something that you're not good at yet. If you do it, you will get better at it. I think we often underestimate how much just even neurochemical, you know, responses that we have. And if you, you're trained throughout your entire life to only get a dopamine hit when you get positive praise in that sort of way, then like you only do those things to get that and everything else is terrifying, right? Yeah. And it's it's also, ironically, it's a real challenge for people who are naturally good at a lot of things. Because if you are somebody who's naturally good at a lot of things, and then you encounter something that you're not naturally good at, your first response is, I can't do this and to quit. Whereas a lot of times people who are not naturally good at things and really have to work at them in order to get good at them, they know, they just learn from an early age, oh, you just have to work at things. Effort is what's going to pay, you know, pay off in the end. People who are naturally good at things, they don't get that kind of reinforcement. And if you combine that with, oh, you're so talented, you're so smart, then, ooh, that's so paralyzing. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's why, in many ways, so many creative giants have like this envy and and frustration with like the oaf, right? The oaf that's just like, I'm just going to do it and I'm going to do it and I'm going to learn it. I'm going to do it. And I'd like to have very little talent, very little going for them, but they just show up all the time. Right. Yeah. And they end up over time, like doing all this really cool stuff. And you're like, they're an oaf, but they do it. Right. That's the thing. Right. Exactly. They apply it. And so in really ways, you project your own frustration of yourself at the oaf. Right. And it's like, Oh, absolutely. If I just focused a little bit more. <laughs> I had a teacher, my, my second teacher in a calligraphy teacher, I was in a, a group of calligraphers with her that met once a month to share our work and, you know, kind of a support group, study group and stuff. And we would sometimes have assignments and stuff. And the rest of us, there were maybe a dozen of us in the group would show up with maybe a one piece or a half a piece or something. And Sarah would show up with like six or eight or 10 finished pieces And we had this running joke that she made six pieces before she brushed her teeth in the morning. And we were, we would kind of say it, you know, it was jokingly and, but a a little bit disparagingly kind of, because I know for me, I can look back and see, tell you absolutely, because I was so envious. I kind of hated her. This is somebody who I absolutely adored and loved. And I kind of hated her because I was so envious because I wanted to be that person who made six pieces before I brushed my teeth in the morning, but I was trapped in perfectionist paralysis. So it was almost impossible for me to create anything. And boy, have I learned from her over the years. And now, you know, there are probably people who are looking at me going, God, I hate her because she's producing so much stuff. Well, I'm producing so much stuff because I'm in the creative sandbox. I don't care if it's crap. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I got one of those last night to someone. It's like you, you, you produce so much. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> not in not in a not in a way that's like, but it was just like because your own internal journey, like you know, and and that's more my stuff. Is like there's so much more I could I could be doing, and so it's like, but there's these twenty things you didn't know about, and so you know, I, I've learned to say okay and thank you because not to be the the it gets weird. It get, totally gets weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's comes out. I mean, this, this, 
when we think about it, and you, and I love so much of um, your manifestos and things like that, but I, I I think one of the things it comes down to is setting what what you would call ridiculously achievable goals, right? And and staying in that sandbox. And by the time you combine sort of ridiculously achievable goals and some of the things that you share on your imperfection manifesto, I'll link to both, and we'll we'll you know there are a couple other things we could talk about with that, but. I think between those two, that's what popped out for me. It's like, you know, that's a really good way for people who are in that position of like, okay, let's make something ridiculously achievable and let's use some of these mindset pieces so that we're not focused on the outcome. It's just saying that. Now, what I want to say is that I totally, totally see the value of the ridiculously achievable goals and in different ways teach the same thing. But one pushback that I often get is that it's just not that motivating to like change habits and things like that to do something that's ridiculously achievable, right? Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering, you deal with this a lot too. How do you suggest people work through that apparent tension? Oh, that's such a great question. Is I'm right now, this week, I've been in this five-day e-course uh, from, called Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. Mm-hmm. Great course. And it's fantastic. I couldn't recommend it more highly. And he he's a researcher at Stanford and he talks about building tiny habits, I mean, even more tiny than my ridiculously achievable goal. When I talk about a ridiculously achievable goal, I'm thinking in terms of if you're a painter or you wish you were painting and you're not painting, the reality is if you can't put 15 minutes a day into your painting, you are making an excuse. Another painter, Michelle Taberge, told me this when I was interviewing her for my very first online course, The Thriving Artist Project. And boy, she was talking about other people and it just hit me right in the heart. Like, oh my God, she's talking to me. And that very day, February 1st, 2011, I made a commitment to paint every day, at least 15 minutes a day for the month of February. So it was a time-limited challenge to myself and and it was a ridiculously achievable daily commitment, right? And I thought... 15 minutes, what, that's nothing, right? That's, what can that give me? But it's better than nothing. So I might as well try it, right? Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous for me to keep going decade after decade, not painting and feeling miserable. And what I discovered from that is that first of all, I can actually get into a state of flow in 15 minutes. Who knew? You don't need three hour chunks of time. We love three-hour chunks of time, but you don't actually need them for a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. For the thing that I wanted to do, I didn't need it. I could do a little bit of painting every day. The other thing I discovered was that if I did even just 15 minutes a day, that's less than two hours a week, right, altogether, my toe was in that creative stream every day, way more than if I had had one, two, or three-hour session on a Saturday or something, right? Mm-hmm. Huge for me. I ended up the rest of that year, 2011, I made 150 finished paintings, little paintings, but finished pieces, which was more prolific than I had been in the previous decade, more over a decade combined. I mean, amazing, right? So that is the power of ridiculously achievable. BJ Fogg's habits are even tinier than that. Like right now, my habits are when I wake up in the morning, when my feet touch the ground, I sit up in bed and my feet touch the ground, I say, it's going to be a great day. That is habit number one. I mean, that is the level of it. It's so tiny. That's like a a nano habit, a micro habit, right? Mm -hmm. 
What was your original question? I don't even remember what it was. Oh, um, how do we how do you work through the apparent tension between ridiculously achievable and it not being very motivating? Yeah. Okay. So I so my formula really is when you have the opportunity to do a deep dive, abs- when you can make create those opportunities for yourself, absolutely make them. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do those things, but the reality is for most of us, we don't have that opportunity to do a deep dive every single day, right? Mm -hmm. So what can we do in the meantime? And what I have discovered, and people do, there's a pushback at the beginning, like, that's so tiny, it's not going to do anything. But if you stick with it for a few days, a week, a month, you will see that a little tiny bit every day makes enormous transformation. It's like Rome wasn't built in a day, right? How was it built? Brick by brick by brick. They, they couldn't lay 5 million, one person couldn't lay 5 million bricks at one time, but over hundreds of years or whatever, yes, that's how it happens, right? So there's a sense, there's, I guess there's a, you have to put, you, you have to give it a try, right? You can't just dismiss it without at least trying it. Yeah. Um, in April of 2015, so that's this year, um, I did the Month of No Hiding project where I was blogging daily for the same reasons because I had built up so many different right excuses why not to do it. And I, I, instinct, I intentionally did it so that um, I wasn't trying to lead anybody else to do it. I wasn't trying to do a community thing. I was just like, I need to do my own work on this one, right? Um, completely transformative process. And it was just for a month, right? So if you've got one of those things that you've been meaning to get to, that you've kind of been like, oh, I'll get a deep dive or whatever, just like really between BJ Fox, course, I'll look to it in the show episode or just really think about what can you do for 15, 30 minutes a day? Because I know like, here's, here's the thing that got me, right? Because I, this has bugged me for years, Melissa. Um, I use a program called, um, 750words.com or I used yeah. to use it by and consistently. I can get out my 750 words in about 15 minutes, right? Getting it all out. And I'm like, even if I think, okay, I'm going to, that that's stream of consciousness, writing, getting it out, so on and so forth. Even if I cut my rate to that and say, you know, to get 750 words out on a blog post is going to take me 30 minutes. Like I can find 30 minutes. Like we can all find 30 minutes. And so the whole reason I wasn't doing was an excuse. And that was starting to bug me, right? In the same way that, that the lady that you were talking to is like, you know, you're finding an excuse. So um, over time, it does make a huge difference. And for from my perspective, and, and you may share this, but from my perspective, it's you stop telling that same story over and over and over again, right? You see that right. there's a different story that you can create and write. Exactly. I mean, the other thing is the biggest thing often is, you know, this, this, fear, this fear of starting, like this starting friction, this, it's just that first hurdle, right? Mm -hmm. And when you make your goal, your commitment, ridiculously achievable, like 10 minutes, or if 10 minutes is really too much, make it five minutes, make it two minutes. I don't care. My goal right now is any amount counts, which I got from my friend, Laureen Marchand, who's another artist. Make it so, so achievable that it's ridiculous that you can't not achieve it because if it's that tiny, you're going to be able to make it happen. You're going to start. And starting is the most important thing. Once you start, you you can usually keep going because that greases the wheels. I didn't limit myself to 15 minutes when I had this daily commitment. That was my minimum, right? And now my minimum is any amount counts. So someday that means, some days that means like 
I'm painting a teeny tiny little dot on a painting or something, but at least I can say, I did it today. I did something today. And then on another day, I might be painting for two hours. As a result of that, any amount counts ridiculously achievable commitment goal, right? So I'm going to pull it back to the Imperfection Manifesto. Again, I'll link to it so you can check it out if you're listening to the show. So what popped out at me um, about it was the this statement, ultimate value doesn't always have anything to do with technical skill. Now, do you mean personal value or the value of what's created? And you can mean both, but I'm just curious of where you're placing the ultimate value um, and, and what that attaches to. Yeah, it's absolutely both. The The story that springs to mind from that statement, ultimate value doesn't always have anything to do with technical skill, that dates back to my days as a dancer. So that was my first creative passion. I started dancing when I was quote unquote, over the hill at age 16. And I ended up going to Juilliard in the dance division, got injured so that I ended up not having a career as a dancer, but it was a huge part of my identity for a few years there. And I remember during sometime during those years, I went to see a performance at Stanford. I grew up right near Stanford University. It was a student performance. And there were some people in the performance who were amazingly technically skilled. But the one person who compelled me more than any other he like had no dance ability. He wasn't, he, he didn't have turnout. He couldn't lift his leg. He didn't have good posture. He didn't move, you know, in this amazingly graceful way or anything, but he was such an amazing performer. His stage presence was so incredible. And he was basically like walking, but he, I couldn't take my eyes off of him. And all of these acrobatic dancers who were, you know, ballerinas, amazing, amazing, amazing. They, I've totally forgotten about them. But this one guy, that was such a powerful moment for me to realize that you can touch an audience in a, without technical skill. Technical skill is great. I mean, the, the ultimate is if we have the passion and the technical virtuosity combined, that's the ultimate, what we want, what we all want, right? But of the two, I firmly believe that the most important is that passion that, uh, in, the, in his case, it was stage presence. I don't know what the equivalent would be in other art forms or whatever, but that's what that's, that line comes from. I think about that when I push publish on a blog post thinking, oh God, this could be better, but I can't figure out how to make it better right now. So I'm going to have to, if I want to publish something today, this is what it is, right? This is what I, imperfect human Melissa Dinwiddie is capable of right in this moment. I'm pushing send with a little cringe, right? If I, you know, snap a picture of a painting, it's like, this is what I am capable of right in this moment. It is so much less than I wish it were, but it, it's what it is. When I did my first CD, recorded my first studio album, <laughs> I remember I took it to my voice teacher and I burst into tears because one of the songs was like, oh, I think I need to re-record it. And she's like, you're crazy. But, you know, that is a snapshot of where I was in that moment of time. And... I don't know who's going to be touched by that. The thing that has that that sort of surprises me, it shouldn't surprise me anymore, but I guess it's not really a surprise, but it strikes me over and over and over again is it's often the things that I feel are the most lacking that I get the most positive response from. 
I have put out pictures of paintings that I've thought, well, I'm going to paint that one over (laughs) and had somebody want to buy it from me. I have put out blog posts or newsletters when I've thought, well, that wasn't my best and had a slew of emails. Oh my God, this one touched me so much. So we are not the best judges of our work. And particularly if we are judging ourselves on technical ability, our ability to touch somebody, to have a positive impact on the world, which is one of my big values, making a difference. That ability to make a difference doesn't necessarily have anything to do with my technical skill. Yeah. Yeah. What I try to remind people or at least try to show them is one of the beauties of prolificness and doing doing a lot of stuff is at a certain point you let go of that because you put it out there and you're like, oh, well, I'm going to do it again tomorrow. Exactly. And I'll do it again the next day. But it's when you build it up and it's like, it took me four weeks to get that thing done. And then you put it out there. You've got a lot of attachment to that. You've got a lot. You, you get so much tied to that. That then if it, whatever happens, you just can't accept it. But if it's like, I did this today, I created this, I'm just going to let it be whatever it is and, and be atta- detached from it, but I'm going to do it again tomorrow. And tomorrow it frees up a lot of that, um, over expectation and paralysis by, by technicality. And that's, you know, what I would, what I would say is like, I think it's really combining the passion and the grit and the talent and excuse me, the technical proficiency. But I think there's this, really other level of mastery that's hard to get to consciously as when you kick all of that technical stuff away and you're just really in the moment of that creative thing. That's the hardest thing to do once you become really talented and really a technical performer is because you're always thinking about the technique, but you lose that art. Yeah. That's the thing that that's the place where we really want to be is where the technique is so inside us that we can forget about it. It doesn't have to be conscious. It's that, uh, it's that unconscious uh, competence. That's the place that we want to be, right? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Alrighty. So let's, let's zoom in back in on you for a little bit. Um, what were a few spark moments in your career since 2010 and coming back through this where you really knew that you were in the zone? Hmm. I would say one was the first time I ran a small group, a group coaching circle called it the creative ignition circle. And it was just four people who met with me once a week. And the feeling of being on those calls and knowing, realizing that my, that I had this ability to listen, to sort of hone in, laser in on what their specific challenge, need, area, whatever was, and bring my expertise and my experience, whatever, to that place and like open a window for them and bring the rest of the group in so that it wasn't just me giving assistance or support or resources or whatever. It was the, the intelligence of the group was at play. That was really powerful for me. And I, I mean, I knew I was good at that kind of thing because I've always been the kind of person that people come and ask advice of and stuff like that. But excuse me, having that experience and getting off the phone and just feeling so high. I I remember I would close the phone calls saying, I I love my job. (laughs) See you next week, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was, that was pretty cool experience of being in the flow and really realizing 
having reaffirmed for me, I knew I loved to teach. I'd t- done a ton of teaching of calligraphy and book arts around the country and having that affirmed for me that I really love that being there. And that's a very flow experience for me coming back to my art and allowing myself to just muck around in the creative sandbox without thinking about the outcome and the the product. That's a flow place for me all the time. That's huge. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting because this, this past five years, this place that I've been in with this business around my blog, Living a Creative Life, is really kind of the culmination of so many things from my childhood and my teenage years and my young adult years. You know, I, I always known I love to perform and I've always, well, I haven't always known that, but I learned it pretty young that I love to perform and love to teach and um, getting a chance to do that in, in a in a different way and online. Like I'd never done that before. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a really cool journey. Yeah. I got a chance to speak at a conference a couple years ago. It was a very short little seven minute presentation with um, slides that were timed. They went like every 15 seconds, a new slide slide came up. So I, boy, and you've given presentations before. So, you know, like a 20 minute presentation is harder than a 60 minute presentation and a seven minute presentation. Oh my God. <laughs> it was so hard to get it down to exactly yeah, they're seven they're minutes. Brutal. And I had a song that I wrote that was woven in throughout the presentation and getting up there, I practiced the heck out of this thing and getting up there and doing it. And, you know, I was nervous and, uh, that was an amazing flow experience. Um, those are highlights. What's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? Huh. Unanticipated challenge. Well, I can say that, you know, 10 years ago, I had no idea that I was going to become a technical geek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of myself as a techie. And... Uh, you know, I've had to, I've had to learn technical things in order to accomplish the things that I want to accomplish. So I've tackled the technical learning curve of running an online business little by little by little over the years. So that was, that was certainly unanticipated, you know, six, 10 years ago. Um, what what about now what I'm currently facing unanticipated, you know, what I'm dealing with right now that's really interesting is I'm, I'm working with assistants for the first time. I always, I remember when I, when I was deep, deep in my Ketuba business and that was occupying, it was like, you know, 60 hours a week, sometimes 80 hours a week. I just like, God, I wish I had an assistant, but I couldn't figure out how that could possibly happen. Didn't have the money. Couldn't, what could I give them? Whatever. And now I've got a couple of people who are doing part-time work for me and figuring out it's, it's, a, it's a really hard and good challenge to figure out what, how to delegate what I can let go of learning how to let go of things. Cause I'm by nature a control freak and, and how to communicate really well so that the work that needs to get done is getting done in a way that is satisfying to me. And what's been really cool about that, Charlie, is is realizing that there, 
there are places where even though I'm a control freak, I've gotten good at saying, you know what, your call. I don't care how it gets done. This is what I need. Do whatever you need to do to make it happen. Whatever's going to be the fastest, most efficient, whatever way for you to do it, most fun way for you to do it, go for it. That is the most empowering feeling. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and on the other side of that journey, what one thing that it really does help doing like delegation is, is, um, really makes you think about like, what's the most valuable thing that I could be doing that only I, that that's unique to me that someone else can't do. And when you're really committed to making a difference or putting great medicine out there in the world, right. And you recognize that you're not because of things that you're just not letting go. And like, it'll bug the crap out of you, you know? That's why I ended up having to hire assistants because I'm, I work about 60 hours a week and there was another 40 hours a week of work that wasn't getting done because I, <laughs> I can't work 100 hours a week. <laughs> yeah, you can't work 100 hours a week. I was going to tease you too, and, and we don't have to spend long on it, but like, here you are, this, you know, multi-potential artist, and you've got musician, you got music going, you've got art going, you're making stuff, and you're a programmer. You can't do that. You can't be a technical geek and those things. Well, you're that's super creative. This is one of the reasons I moved to the Rainmaker platform with my blog because there are no plugins. There's no issues with uh, plugin incompatibility shutting down my website anymore. So, yes. In fact, you know Corey Huff. You, I do. Mm-hmm. He and I have been in business together. We had a podcast together and we ran a, an online course together and we're in a mastermind group together as well. And he's so brilliant. And I was telling him months ago, Oh, I have to, there was something about my website that I needed to fix. I can't remember what it was. I was always needing to fix things. And there was this pause and he said, Melissa, you need to get out of the WordPress development business. Yep. And I was like, oh my God, he's right. (laughs) Corey is brilliant. That was what finally pushed me over the edge to look for a way to do that. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Okay. So wrapping up here. If people remember nothing else about you and your work, what's the one thing you want them to take away from today's episode? The thing that I want people to take away is that, first of all, everybody is creative. If you don't think you're creative, that is just a thought and it is not reality. I can't tell you, Charlie, how many years I spent in my life thinking that I was not creative. I was not artistic. I was whatever. So that's the first thing. And the other thing that so I'm so passionate about is doing your creative thing is not self-indulgent. It is how you will change the world. First of all, it will make you feel more alive. It will make you feel happier. It will make your life go better. Scientific studies have shown that doing your creative thing, your hobby, whatever, anything that engages your interest is one of the best ways to restore energy to your brain, specifically to the parts of your brain and the prefrontal cortex that control your willpower and your self-control. And it tamps down the lizard brain, the amygdala. So when you do your creative thing, you feel more alive, you have more patience to deal with the slings and arrows of daily life. You bring that energy to everything you do and everyone you touch out in the world. That is not self-indulgent, restoring energy to your brain and bringing that energy out into the world. And whatever you are doing when when you do your creative thing, you have no idea how that might touch other people. 
no matter how you, what you think about it, the stuff that you might think is the crappiest, that could save somebody's life. So that's what I want people to take away. Doing your creative thing, allow yourself to find that, find something that compels you, let yourself do it. It's not self-indulgent. It's how you change the world. All righty. Thanks so much for being with us today, Melissa. Thank you, Charlie. It's been great to talk to you. Okay, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Melissa. You are creative and your creative thing can touch someone. It can change the world. So what stories are you telling yourself about your creativity and what excuses might you want to play with just calling false so you can do your creative thing, make a difference and be happy? Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.